Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. It's time to dish. Because every weekend, we continue our celebration of food and the role that it plays in our lives on this show. Tune in to explore everything we love about delicious dishes, righteous recipes, food pros, and decadent tastes. I'm all about the culture, the science, the history, the backstories, the deeper meanings that come together every time people sit down to enjoy a meal. So I like to say, if you love to cook or love to eat, then we should definitely be friends. This place is for you. And it's my goal to make your dishes come alive with flavor. So stay tuned because there is delicious conversation guaranteed throughout this hour. Now, I hope you'll become a friend and a fan on social, Facebook, Instagram, and X, of course, at Chef Jamie Gwen. And if you happen to have missed a show, you'll find podcasts under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen on Apple Music, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And I'm always serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com. So with that said, let's dig in, shall we? I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts to make you the best cook you know. And we are knee deep in the heat of summer. And there might be nothing better than a summer picnic of fried chicken. It's like the most perfect food feast for family and friends, right? And the one thing that all great fried chicken has in common is the crispy, delicious crust and the moist, tender chicken at the heart of it all. So how do you perfect your fried chicken? Well, some chefs will say it's super simple with a single ingredient substitute, one that comes from a jar, in fact, whether you have a tasty jar of pickles, uh, full of pickles or on its way to empty, do not pour the leftover, leftover juice rather down the drain. The newest trend for the ultimate in fried chicken is pickle brine. Yes, pickle brine or juice, AKA a mixture of water, salt, and spice, right? Is the ultimate brine. Some of the fancier varieties have uh, hot peppers or horseradish or pickled garlic. Um, and the pickle juice is especially delicious in lots of dishes. Like I love it in a cocktail, uh, but it's also the key ingredient for very, very flavorful and delicious fried chicken. Yes, the perfect Bloody Mary. Yes, a dirty martini. Uh, but if you really want to amp up the flavor of your fried chicken, it's all about the jar of pickle brine. And feel free to freeze the brine, by the way, in an ice cube tray, and then you can drop it into a cocktail, or you can thaw enough cubes to brine that chicken. Now, I do believe that the ultimate fried chicken is brined. You could do a water, salt, brown sugar, peppercorn solution. Uh, no matter how you do it, I really think that it adds to the juiciness of poultry. And then I dip in buttermilk, I coat in seasoned flour, and I fry in a neutral oil like canola. But to get that 
perfectly crunchy skin that we all love so much, you do need a few chef's tips. There are some cardinal rules to guarantee perfectly crispy fried chicken. And by the way, my fried chicken is ever evolving. I believe that my mom makes the best fried chicken uh, and I aspire to it. But every time I make fried chicken, I tweak a little bit and I figure by the end of this lifetime, I will find fried chicken perfection. These are my best chef's tips I've learned along the way. You must dry the chicken uh, with paper towels before dipping. And I know it sounds counterintuitive because, you know, you just took it from a wet place, but there is a difference between sticky residual moisture and the kind of moisture that keeps you from a crispy coating or sogginess for that matter. Now, when coating your chicken with flour, you really have to pack it on there. The extra flour turns into crispy goodness in the hot oil. And some great cooks double dip, but I find that coating too heavy. It is all about the craggly edges though. So get it in there and mush it around um, because you'll find that the flour in the creases and the extra spaces makes a difference. Now, flour your chicken just as the oil is coming to temperature, please. You do not want coated chicken parts sitting around because the flour soaks up the moisture, right? And if there was any one chef's tip that I could give you, it is that you have to flour right before it goes into the skillet. And you want to flour in batches, like just enough to fit your cast iron or your fryer, whatever it is you're using. Now, high temperature is the way to go. I'm talking 380 degrees. It fries faster. The outside is crispier for it. I swear by it. And you have to keep the temp up. So you don't want the oil to dip below anywhere close to 340 the entire time the chicken is in there. And that means you can't crowd the pan, right? When lowering the chicken pieces into that hot oil, you submerge them halfway beneath the surface and you count to five before you lower the rest of the way. And you can do this safely with tongs, of course. But this, by the way, prevents that flat, soggy spot from developing where the chicken sits in contact with the pan. Uh, Make sure that, again, you cool your fried chicken as well. And I've mentioned this before, on a cooling rack, not a plate. Having the chicken in contact with a hard surface causes condensation, contributes to the sogginess, and we just did all that hard work to keep it crispy. So my best fried chicken recipe is posted at chefjamie.com. And of course, you're going to dig in, right? Maybe you're going to make hot honey, a little bit of Calabrian chili oil added to honey and drizzled over that chicken. Maybe you like sriracha mayo spread on a toasted brioche bun with Boston or bib lettuce and a thick slice of heirloom tomato for the ultimate fried chicken sandwich. And then, of course, I don't know much about leftover fried chicken because we never seem to have any. It's kind of like leftover wine, right? But if you do have leftover fried chicken, shred it into a salad, throw in fresh cherry tomatoes, peak of the season, sliced cucumber, um, gobs of ranch dressing, and make a big, beautiful Sunday salad, right? There's just so much deliciousness there. All right. That is my fried chicken tutorial. If you want a dish on fried chicken, you can email me. I'd love it. I will uh, respond to you directly. It's Jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. 
All right, with that said, it's time for food news this week. This is some news you can use. I like to call it very necessary dinner party conversation. But I thought this was really fascinating because I think I I just wasn't expecting it, right? So there are 10 top states in the US that love to dine out. And if you were to guess them, no matter what state you're in, I can't imagine you along with me would have been right because I was not. Dining out, not just for celebration, but on a, like a daily or, you know, every other night kind of basis, uh, takes, uh, I think some of the onus off cooking every day. I'd love to eat out, support local, try new flavors. And Colorado takes first place on the list with, uh, their volume of residents who eat out on a monthly basis. Now, Hawaii is second on the list, and I think that has something to do with tourism, of course. Uh, My thoughts, heart, and prayers are with Maui, uh, and we are supporting uh, the restaurants there. My family is, um, so please give what you can. Um, Florida came in third place, just shy of Hawaii, for those who like to dine out. Those living in Tallahassee, you are leading the way. Congratulations to you. Nevada in fourth place, Arizona in fifth, Georgia in sixth. Amazing, right? Even as inflation and the rising cost of living continues um, to put an onus on many out there, I know, um, dining out in a restaurant still ever popular. Really fascinating stuff. All right. You're going to be the hit of the dinner party with that conversation. I know it. Colorado, you eat out the most? Who knew? Okay. Now, maybe you're dining in. Maybe you're contemplating all the mysteries of life. Maybe you're wondering, to marinate or not to marinate? That is the question. Well, we're going to dig deep about the process and the science of marinating with the senior culinary director for more than a decade of Serious Eats, the award-winning food and drink website we all love, you know, 7 million hungry readers every month. Yes, Daniel Gritzer is here, and the chef is sitting down to dish. So let's talk texture and juiciness to marinate or not right after this. Grab a snack. Come on back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Informative, entertaining, and delicious conversation abounds. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I hope that you're enjoying your summer, grilling in full swing. And are you marinating? Uh, I'm sure you are. But did you know that questions about marinades linger? Like you, I'm sure, I am a huge Serious Eats fan. Why? Because we are just a couple of the 7 million hungry readers every month 
that love to dig deep into culinary science. And it's the stories about food. It's the knowledge, the education, and the entertainment. I call it edutainment that Serious Eats offers that draws us back. But the question is, do marinades and the science behind them really deliver the expected flavor punch? Well, shedding a light on the factors that make a difference in your meat is the senior culinary director for more than a decade of Serious Eats. He is Daniel Gritzer, and he's all about science. And I am delighted that you are gracing this show. Daniel, welcome, chef. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Okay, before we dig deep into marinades, I would love, because Kenji has graced this show, and I like to say I have the best culinary thinkers here, and I do. I would love if you would share some of the process of how Serious Eats goes about digging deep. Because you are some of the most extraordinary knowledge on the internet and beyond when it comes to culinary science. I mean, we're learning from you every day, and I love it. Thank you for saying that. Uh, we, we definitely uh, try our hardest to be as rigorous as possible in everything we do. Um, we, it's like a, you know, a never-ending mantra here of like, we are going to do our homework and we're going to show our work to our readers so that we can both, by showing our work, we explain what we're doing and why we're doing it and why we're saying what we're saying. But I think also to me, it, it, it conveys, it builds that trust because then our readers can see and I'll just say, from being in uh, media for a long time, there's a lot of stuff out there where whoever wrote the article just read some art of the article, and they kind of, you know, took the ideas and repackaged it into a new form. I'm, you know, and my colleagues were, were categorically <laughs> against doing that. We certainly, we do our research, we do read other people and, and give credit, but we really want to do our own work. And so for every recipe, for everything we do, Getting, doing the research, getting, getting the right experts on certain topics, and then really getting into the kitchen and doing tests, and to your point, science-based tests mm-hmm. that we can speak more confidently about what the recipe is, yes. how you make it, and why you make it that way. It's just a, it's a cornerstone of, of what we do. Um, and, and, and it served you part. well, Chef, by oh, the way. Yeah. It has served you well for a lot of years. I mean, I remember the creation of Serious Eats, and you have always been lauded as the premier epitome of, um, you know, I'm going to say hard news when it comes to food, right? It is well-researched. It is researched. It is uh, very established information. And I read it like a math equation, right? I read from beginning to end so that I can figure out the problem and find the solution. Yeah, and a big, a big thing for me is, in, in my mind, I kind of imagine there's sort of these two pillars. One pillar is really trying to understand or getting people to, you know, depending on what the topic is, experts who do understand the, the context of a specific dish, meaning its cultural context, its historic context. Because from cuisine to cuisine, the standards by which a dish may be judged uh, can change. And so the first step is understanding the, a dish on its own terms. And obviously there's, you know, dishes 
come in, you know, any one dish can come in many, many forms. There's no one right way to do it. But to someone who has a really deep, rich understanding of, of, of that contextual element, and then you marry that with this other pillar, which is the science pillar, um, where it's side-by-side tests and trying different variables and really trying to drill into what, you know, what do we think is, you know, one of the best ways, you know, putting best in quotes, because that's mm-hmm. obviously <laughs> not, you know, sort of an artificial concept, but one of the best ways to, to make a recipe. And it's the marriage of those two things where I think, the, for me, the real magic happens. You know, science alone yes. is very informative, but doesn't necessarily get you to the most informed recipe. And only doing it the way it's been done for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years is maybe also not the way to get there, right? And sure. so it's bringing those two together. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's a marriage where you find that sweet spot. Okay, mm-hmm. so give us the story and science of marinades, please. You assign one of your genius writers, Tim Chin, this yes. concept of, or you pose the question, rather, I should say, are marinades even worth it? And extensive months of long testing and research determines these results. Let's start at the beginning. Um, what is the yeah. essential element of a marinade? Yeah, so this question, it, we've been writing about marinades for so long on the site, and, and Kenji has, and I have, and for so long we've, we've said, you know, we, marinades are more of a surface treatment. But I've also known that we've never actually published a standalone article on this topic on the site that has really done that, like we were talking about, done the actual testing to just lay it out plainly and also to confirm that what we're saying, what we've been saying is true. So um, I I reached out to Tim Chin, who is, as you said, a brilliant, brilliant uh, cook, recipe developer, writer, and also is somebody with a science background, and, and, you know, he can do this stuff really well. And I posed the question to him. I said, Tim, like, I would love to, to really chip away at this question on the site in a more meaningful way. And so he dove in, and, you know, the first caveat is just their marinades come in, in, you know, infinite number of forms, and so we do have to speak in kind of broad strokes and generalities. It's very hard to make any, you know, absolutely concrete statements um, because you have different kinds of protein that you might be marinating. You have different ingredients in a marinade, and all of these things can influence how the marinade works. Um, but that said... Um, if we if we kind of jump into like what's a marinade? What's the purpose of a marinade? I think I think most people probably assume that one of the main purposes of a marinade is to flavor the meat, like to give it flavor. And the more time it sits in the marinade, the more flavorful it becomes. Right. And so that was a big part of the question. Like, is that even true? <laughs> um, so yeah. So Tim sort of went went at this, and the, you know the first thing he did was he just sort of looked at what are the, what are the main ingredients you usually find in a marinade. Uh, so we could start there, just sort okay. of breaking down, like, what do you see in a marinade? Well, you first, see acid. Sometimes you see acid. Right. Yep. It could be uh, lemon juice or citrus juice. It could be uh, wine. Um, uh, other fruit juices are, are, are common in marinades. So, Some yeah, sort acid. of liquid as the base. Some sort of liquid. There's usually uh, I, some kind of water element, uh-huh. whether it's water or water being introduced through 
juice or wine, beer. Right. Um, somehow water is getting in there. That's Be- very important. Beer is good. And salt. Okay, quick pause when we come back more on how to get the most flavor in your meat. Daniel Gritzer, Senior Culinary Director of Serious Eats, is here. Grab a snack. Come on back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're back and we're dishing. Does a marinade really work? Well, as the questions about marinades linger, let's talk about texture and juiciness. In the month-long tested and researched article just released at SeriousEats.com, all about the science of marinades. Senior Culinary Director Daniel Gritzer of Serious Eats is here and we are dishing. I think everyone would tell you that a marinade has salt, which, by the way, is controversial in and of itself because I am seeing marinades more often than not that are not salted. And the recommendation, I know it's fascinating, the recommendation (laughs) is to marinate the meat without salt, remove it from the marinade, dry it off, season it, and then cook it. And when they, and these recommendations, the seasoning step, it's not, there's not an additional time where the meat is supposed to sit with the salt on it after no. it's been taken out. No. Wow. Well, you have I a mean, whole nother article in the works here. <laughs> I mean, I have to say based on, based on the, the, the work that we've done, I'm a bit skeptical of that sure. method. You know, I'm reluctant to say it doesn't work. As am I. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, one of the things we learned uh, in these tests is that probably the single most important thing any marinade does has to do with the salt. It, it brines the meat. That's for, um, mo- for moisture retention, correct? Because we brine a turkey or a chicken, especially at the holidays, because we want it to retain its juiciness. Yes. It's yes. for moisture retention, exactly. And for seasoning. The salt is... Salt is just sodium chloride, which when it dissolves in water, it, it breaks apart into sodium and chloride ions, um, which are, uh, you know, in the, in, on the molecular level, they are extremely small. So they are able pretty easily to pass through the different membranes and, uh, you know, structures of a piece of meat mm-hmm. all the way to the center. So given enough time, salt will penetrate a piece of meat, and you will taste the seasoning all the way through to the center. So one thing salt is doing with enough time, is it seasoning meat that you marinate? Another thing that it's doing is exactly what you said. It's helping with moisture retention. Okay, so then the big question is, I guess at the end of the day, really, does a marinade accomplish what we all aspire to? Flavorful meat that is, with moisture retained, juicy and tender, uh, you know, overall big picture, do you marinate, chef? And I guess the answer is, based on our testing, um, it accomplishes some of that stuff, but not all of it. Um, And the big, the the big, big thing it doesn't tend to accomplish is bigger flavor. Mm. Flavor, uh, by and large, 
the the molecules that that we experience as flavor aroma molecules um and and aside from salt some of the flavor molecules which could include sugar right something you detect on your tongue they uh they simply do not penetrate into the meat more than a millimeter or two it's it's wow. it's a minimal level of penetration mm-hmm. so the difference in flavor between a piece of meat that's been marinated for no time, literally tossed in the marinade and then cooked right away, or marinated overnight uh, or even a full day, if you cut off the outside of that meat, uh, it, it pretty much tastes the same. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about time then, just for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you, or what did Tim resolve is a reasonable or realistic amount of time to marinate? Because I think so many of us are planning ahead, you know, working on next Saturday's dinner party. Um, But truth be told, maybe we need to apply less time than we're actually taking. Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually good news. Yes. (laughs) It's possibly slightly disappointing news to think, oh, a marinade's not doing as much as, you know, we kind of were thinking it did uh, when you when you really put it to the test and do side-by-side comparisons. But the good news is you don't need to marinate stuff that long, which is kind of awesome. How um, great. And, yeah, so I think keeping sort of keeping in mind what a marinade does do, uh, it, it does brine the salt, assuming that you are putting something salty in yes, your marinade. Yes, please. Um, is, is an effective thing that happens, and that's something where it depends on the piece of meat. It depends on the type of meat. So again, you know, chicken is going to be a little different from pork. But if we're just talking kind of ballpark, right around the four-hour mark, uh, you're in a really sweet spot for for the brine being, you know, nicely effective on oh, that's your piece good. of meat. Thank um, you. Yeah, so that's, that's good news. You know, four hours, eight hours, uh, even one hour is better than nothing um, as far as brining goes. Um, and then the other thing is, if you do have an acidic marinade or a marinade that's alkaline, which sometimes is the case, like if, if something like baking soda were added, less common than acid for sure, but it, it can be done. Or a marinade that has um, certain enzymes. Uh, for example, a pineapple juice is a, is a famous one, fresh pineapple juice, papaya. There are other ones. These fruits have um, enzymes that enzymes in them that uh, naturally break apart proteins into smaller pieces. They, 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 you know, enzymatically snip them into smaller pieces. So they have a tenderizing effect. And acid has a tenderizing and moisture retention effect. Uh, and alkaline brine also has a moisture retention effect. And these enzymes, if you happen to have uh, ingredients that introduce them, also do. Where it gets tricky with those things, an acidic marinade or a marinade that has something like pineapple juice in it, is that if left for too long, the effect becomes mm. quite negative. Yes. Uh, and that tenderizing uh, effect turns into a mushifying effect, and suddenly you have this meat that's kind of pasty and yeah, just awful. not good. So no. that's where you want to, you really want to have probably the most caution, I would say, is when you're working with an acidic marinade or a marinade that has something like pineapple juice or papaya juice in it. There's so much to learn. I will tell you, I have read the article three times over on SeriousEats.com because I, I, I feel like 
the the controversy and as it stated as tim writes after all this testing and research and i quote we can kind of sort of answer the question is marinating really worth your time he asks well yes somewhat and that's really it i think it becomes a very personal application right the flavor Mm -hmm. that you love the desired outcome you know what you're looking to achieve in the dish and then, like you said, maybe it's good news, a little less time or application, but you'll still get a good amount of what you hoped for. And uh, knowing Serious Eats and how deeply you all dig, um, I'm sure there's more to come on marination, no doubt. Yeah, I don't think we've exhausted the topic uh, by any measure, <laughs> <laughs> but I think, we, I think we have a really great base. Yes. to work from yes. in our understanding of marinades. Yeah, brilliant. And and the scenarios posed and the work that Tim did, kudos to him. Uh, really fascinating stuff. What is the next on the horizon? Give us a sneak peek, please, as to what we can uh, continue to look forward to at SeriousEats.com. Oh, wow. Uh, what good is recipes. coming? What's that? Sorry. What good is coming? Lots of great recipes coming. We've been doing a lot of work on international cuisines. Uh, I've been working very hard with my colleagues and contributors to really improve the the diversity of cuisines represented on the site and the depth of that representation. And I'm I'm just so excited about uh, so much of what we've added to the site on that front from people who really know their stuff um, and have just added wonderful, wonderful recipes. And then Lots of um, this with the summer underway, we've been doing lots of work on, on produce and storage, you know, how to store something, how to ripen peaches, the, you know, more of this testing-based, uh, science-based uh, exploration as well. Fabulous. Well, we will continue to read and watch and learn. And for that, we thank you. Um, and, and congratulations and kudos to you on so many wonderful years of being such an extraordinary resource for those that, as I like to say, love to cook and love to eat. I hope, Daniel, that you will come back and grace this show again when the next uh, big controversial research study begins, when you (laughs) undertake it. Yes, please come back. (laughs) Daniel Gritzer is the Senior Culinary Director for Serious Eats, the award-winning food and drink website visited by over 7 million hungry readers every month, uh, known for their rigorously tested recipes that that they are, science-driven cooking techniques, robust equipment reviews, and stories um, with just beautiful meaning uh, on the foods that we love to eat. They are a resource of mine, and I'm sure yours as well. And if you want to learn more about the science of marinades, check it out. Go to SeriousEats.com or follow on social at SeriousEats. Daniel Gritzer, um, you are now a correspondent. I've just crowned you that. And um, (laughs) we (laughs) we expect you to come back and teach us more, please. Oh, it would be a pleasure. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. A delicious summer to you. There is more fabulous food to feed your soul in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away.
Gain culinary intelligence right here and right now. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. If you're a beef lover, well, then this conversation is for you because this is a deliciously meaty cookbook. In Jessica Formicola's new collection of recipes, a cookbook entitled Beef It Up, she offers tasty ways to serve up protein-rich beef meals without a lot of fuss. I love her beef suppers, where it's all in one pot or pan or bowl, and then her takes on the classics, like sheep pan steak fajitas and a 20-minute Mongolian-style beef. You know Jessica Formicola, of course, as the creator of Savory Experiments, the trusted food and much-beloved lifestyle blog. She contributes to Parade Magazine, lots more illustrious places, and she eats a lot of beef near Baltimore, Maryland, where she lives. And I welcome you, Jessica. Glad to have you. And congratulations on the cookbook. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Okay, let's beef it up. I love the culinary knowledge, the education that you share at the start of the book. You really pack a punch when it comes to beef knowledge. And so I'd love to start there. Uh, a quick review. My listeners know their beef cuts, of course. But I think there's always something new to learn. Um, talk about, if you would, um, the grades of beef first and what to look for, what's best. Well, the grades of beef that you're going to see the most on the shelf are prime, choice, and select. Prime being the most exquisite, really marbled well. It has almost like little snowflakes, little ribbons of fat throughout it. And those striations are going to make it super juicy, super tender because they mm. melt into the meat while you are cooking. Yummy. Choice is coming after that, a little bit less a little bit less fat, but it it shouldn't be discounted. I think that if you know what you're doing and you know how to cook a cut, you could make choice or even select really, really stand out and be amazing in the kitchen. I have to agree with you. I, I think the preparation and the method is so much a part, an equal part of the finished product, you could call it. And I very much believe in quality and buy the best that you can afford. But never to discount the larger cuts or the long, slow braise that makes for the best pulled beef, right? And and I love how you explain how much fat uh, brings flavor. Um, you also talk about the different cuts of meat. Now, I am a skirt steak raised kind of girl. My mother always bought skirt steak when she could get her hands on it um, and flank. Um, and then, you know, uh, filet was for special occasions or when people came over for dinner. We've come a long way. I mean, you can buy a, a ribeye cut three, four, five ways from a butcher today. But those pieces on the cow, they all remain the same. Everybody loves a brisket. And, and you know, who, who doesn't love um, the, the smaller cuts, the bigger cuts, and everything in between? And one of the unique things about the book is for people that aren't as familiar with beef cuts, a lot of times when they see a recipe and they can't find the specific cut that they're looking for, that recipe references, mm -hmm. they look for something that's similar in size and shape, but don't fully understand that just because it looks similar in size and shape, it needs to be cooked the same. So we have this excellent um, grid of beef cuts to mystify that can help the consumer understand what 
swaps can be used Smart. because even flanks, you know, flank steak, steak and skirt steak, two very different. Sometimes the flank is thinner than others. I mean, I've seen different flank steaks in a million different sizes mm. and shapes, and it's not always the exact same. But also geographically speaking, sometimes these cuts have different names depending yes. on where you are. And for some people, that can be confusing. Yeah. So it's really a gem, and I love hmm. to teach people along the way. And it's a useful tool for anybody using any beef recipe, mine or yours or anybody else's. Yes, and that's that culinary knowledge that you know I'm trying to ever increase. All of us are. It makes you, a, I think, a more confident cook in the kitchen. Um, talk about the myth of room temperature meat, please, and your opinion on it. I have always been an advocate of taking cheese out of the refrigerator uh, before you're going to slice it, uh, taking my steak out so that it cooks evenly in the cast iron pan uh, long before uh, I start dinner. Uh, but you have some really interesting and I think very valuable opinions on the temperature of meat. Yeah, so I, I fully agree with you about cheese. Um, I mm-hmm. love to take the chill off of cheese, but cheese is generally a much smaller piece and a different texture and consistency. So it can come up to temperature a little bit faster, whereas depending on your cut of meat, you know, if you just have like a New York strip steak, you can probably take it out, but 30 minutes, which is what a lot of recipes are going to tell you to do, doesn't really make that much of a difference in the temperature of the beef. And what can potentially happen is that the outside becomes much more room temperature and the inside still stays fairly cold. Now, for a person like me that loves uh, my steak rare, that doesn't bother me one bit. It actually can help me achieve my goal. But if you're looking at a larger porterhouse or ribeye or something like that, even two hours or three hours isn't going to take it up to room temperature the way some recipes will tell you to. And after it's been out for that long, it can potentially be unsafe. It is all in Beef It Up, the new cookbook release from Jessica Formicola. You know her from savoryexperiments.com. Go to the website, please. You'll find everything you need to get your hands on this book and follow on social at Savory Experiments for lots more daily deliciousness. This is really a a beautiful book. You should be very proud. Uh, And I'm thrilled to be able to share it. Yes, of course. Thank you for sharing your passion, Jessica. Appreciate it. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of stimulating culinary conversation. Well, at least I hope you thought so. I hope that I fed your soul and I made you hungry enough to lick your radio, whatever form you listen in. And I hope that you'll tune in every week where I guarantee there is lots more fabulous food coming your way. But don't go yet. Let me leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the week. I hope you checked it out. I'm very proud of it, in fact. My new ebook on everything grand and grilled has released on Amazon, and it is a five-star top-rated pick. 30 recipes, chef's tips, barbecue insight, grilled cocktails, so much more. It released as the number one new release in California cooking, and I hope you love it. It's called Sizzle and Smoke. It is my new grilling ebook available on Amazon, so please check it out. And then let me share a bonus recipe. My last bite this week is a grilled honey butter chicken recipe. And it's brushed with this garlicky honey butter and it gets smoky and 
sizzly and delicious. And I can't wait to share it. I'm posting it on social now at Chef Jamie Gwen. It's my grilled honey butter chicken. So take a bite. I will meet you here next weekend. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.